the Stroke Special Interest Group has created two recent podcasts with Dr. George Hornby, the primary author of the Clinical Practice Guideline to Improve Locomotor Function Following Chronic Stroke, Incomplete Spinal Cord Injury, and Brain Injury. In summary, the goal of the CPG was to identify the efficacy of interventions which can improve walking speed and distance in individuals who are greater than six months post-focal neurologic injury, stroke, incomplete spinal cord injury, or traumatic brain injury. The first podcast discussed the content of the action statements of the CPG. The second podcast explored how the CPG's topic and focus were shaped and specifics about how the recommendations were systematically formulated. In this podcast, we will talk with members of the Knowledge Translation Task Force that have been working on the Intensity Matters campaign, which provides clinicians with guidance on how to focus on intensity when providing intervention for improving locomotor function. The task force has created guidelines that can be found on the AMPT Intensity Matters website. So today we have Carrie Holland and Megan Bretz here it's from the Knowledge Translation Task Force. So Thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us and say hello to the group. Thank you so much, Jackie, and thanks for inviting us. You're very welcome. So is the Intensity Matters campaign just for locomotor training, or is the Intensity Matters campaign applicable while using other treatment modalities as well? Well, I think when you look across any patient or group of patients, what's really important is what your outcome is. Right, so if you're, you need to define your outcome and then you need to use best evidence to get to the outcome. So if you want to improve walking abilities, especially if you have you know, an individual with chronic stroke or traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury, they jump very nicely into this recommendation or this practice guideline and intensity is a piece of that, right? It's an active ingredient in helping that, the change in that outcome, in that behavior. So. That makes sense. So when a clinician is looking at this campaign, should we really only be applying the intensity matters idea to locomotor interventions, would you say? No, I guess I think it goes back to the outcome. So what do you want to change? And intensity is merely a training parameter, right? It's, it's one of the many training parameters that we need to think of and right specificity, repetition, salience, all of those are other, there are other components too. What are some of those principles and those ingredients that we know are effective in making change, but it has to be designated and defined to the outcome you want to change. That becomes really important. Is high intensity training appropriate for all individuals with neurological disorders, including acute and chronic individuals? The clinical practice guideline, it was specific for chronic ambulatory individuals um, with the diagnoses of stroke, motor incomplete spinal cord injury, and brain injury. But I believe the recommendation for intensity matters is more of a general recommendation for patients with a variety of neurologic diagnoses who have the goals and capacity to improve in walking. So I would say definitely that the, the campaign is sort of intensity matters, that it's a, it's a critical training parameter that we need to be measuring and controlling for it, paying attention to it, you know, monitoring heart rate, 
asking the patient how they're, they're feeling, trying to create an environment um, where we're driving intensity. When you get to the subacute, obviously that's kind of outside of the CPG recommendations, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of data in subacute populations that would support this. There is a clinical practice mm -hmm. guideline that is in its fruition, it's building right now. They're looking for appraisers right now. Um, for the development of that practice guideline, but we have that data. We just don't have the summation of data in subacute like we have in chronic. Is there a difference in interval training versus continuous training, and is one preferred? I think I think the most important thing is is engaging in a lot of task specific practice that's intensive in nature, and I think that I've had a lot of success um, doing both continuous and interval training approaches with patients. I feel like the patients that we have, um, I guess, resorted to more of an interval level training is because they maybe can't tolerate that continuous bout of intensive exercise. So in an effort to increase the intensity and the amount, we, we've given breaks. We've either slowed down or we've stopped. But my go-to is typically more continuous exercise just because of the, um, the intensity and, and the amount of practice. That makes sense. And do you have any specific regimen in terms of, for interval training as well as continuous training that you tend to gravitate toward? I think it depends on the goals of the interventions and the specific goals that the patient has. Um, I know we've applied a lot of the work coming out of Dr. Pierce Boyne's lab regarding high intensity interval training and how we dose that depends somewhat on if the patient has specific goals to improve in speed or to improve in distance. And really we're just kind of figuring it out as we're going as to what the patient is able to best tolerate that's going to give the, the best results. So that, that totally makes sense. Is there, and there, so there isn't really any kind of go-to, like a 60 seconds on 30 seconds off type of thing. I know it can be hard to know how someone's gonna respond. I feel like there's just so many factors and even within the session, it's changing based on the patient's response. I think the important thing is that we are doing continuous heart rate monitoring. We're looking at the monitor, we're seeing how the patient is responding to the intervention, whether that's an intervention that's delivered in a continuous manner or in an interval manner, and we're making decisions about how to adjust the speed or the duration or whatnot of the activity based on their response so that we can spend as much time as possible in that session in that targeted heart rate zone. Would you agree with that, Carrie? Yeah, definitely. And I think the times where I've used it is really when I have individuals who are exceeding their heart rate limits, where they can't continuously mm -hmm. keep going. Um, without busting through their training zone. So it's really a mechanism to keep them safe. I rarely use it where I'm taking somebody, you know, into 70 to 80% of their heart rate reserve, and then I'm dropping them back down to 50 or 60. I want to maximize that session in the heart rate training zone for as much as that patient can tolerate. Um, if they're requesting rest breaks, they're requesting rest breaks. But the goal for me is really how do I get as much practice at the targeted intensity within those conditions that I feel like are really salient to are my patients. So for example, if they want to go to the soccer field to their grandson's soccer game, then I got to simulate those environments with my eye on the heart rate monitor to make sure it's intense enough. So I would say the times I've used interval training have really been 
maybe a different way than people typically think about it, where they're kind of busting through the zone. And so I do some short bursts of quicker walking and they may be exceeding and I got to drop them back down for safety perspective. But I think one of the most important things that Megan has indicated is that continuous heart rate monitoring, right? Because if we take this action statement of moderate to high intensity walking training and we don't use continuous heart rate monitoring, in my mind, that, that takes the should do to the should not because it's no longer safe. Um, and we really have to be making sure that our patients are under 85% of their heart rate maximum as described by ACSM and, and that we're really making sure that they're safe throughout the training. So I think you touched on this a little bit. How do you monitor heart rate and how do you decide in heart rate range for someone to start with? And how do you choose between heart rate reserve or heart rate max? And what percentage do you start at? Yeah, I mean, I would say that in, in my clinical practice, I choose heart rate reserve. There's nothing wrong with heart rate max. Um, it takes into account resting heart rate. And so it's just become my standard practice of using heart rate reserve. I think this is a really important question, Jackie, and I'm glad you asked it because, right, we have so many patients that might have other comorbidities that make us nervous. You know, how many is too many? Or when, when do we need to call the doctor? Or is it just safe to do with everyone? And there's no clear answer, right? So say you have a patient um, and they have other comorbidities and you're concerned and you've contacted the doctor and they've told you, nope, they should be fine, totally cleared, but you're still feeling nervous. There is nothing wrong with systematically starting, for example, at 60% heart rate reserve and training them for a period of time. You know, you're always triangulating data, right? You're watching the patient, you're listening to them breathe, they're looking at their, you're asking them how they're feeling, you're measuring their heart rate. And so you're gonna see like a little litmus test how they respond. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's smart practice. And then you can systematically over a session or two, maybe they get to 70% and now you're safe. You've talked to them about the things they should look out when they leave therapy, monitoring their symptoms, how they're feeling in between sessions. So there's not one right answer, but you know, you're always doing, you're making the best decisions you can for your patients. And so if there's something that makes you feel nervous about another diagnosis, or they've just really been doing no activity, um, and then they're coming in for therapy, and you might be really starting something new, there's nothing wrong with being systematic and starting at 60% heart rate reserve and building them up to that over a session or two and see how they respond. Mm -hmm. That's helpful to hear because I think when I came into this, I wanted to hear like, as I was asking before, 60 seconds on, 30 seconds off, but realistically, in lieu of the suggestion, you have every person's different and you have to see how they respond and, and you have to see how, what it takes to get to that range safely. Yeah, and I think what happens and I think part of the, in the issue with implementation is it's sort of like, I think therapists pigeonhole themselves, themselves into thinking it's all or nothing, right? Like I have to get to 70% of heart rate reserve and this person has to stay there for 40 minutes or else nothing. And it's like, okay, no. I mean, when Megan and I start with patients really early, they might not get in the, in the heart rate zone because they have such weakness in their paretic side, or if they have a motor incomplete spinal cord injury, they may just be so weak. They don't have enough neuromuscular control to even drive the cardiovascular system 
to get that type of response. But that doesn't mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater. We keep working. It's like, here's our target. Here's where we're going. In every session, we're going to keep pushing. We're going to keep monitoring you um, until we get there. Um, and so that's, I think, where we lose it, right? Is it's like, you've got this beautiful recommendation of you should do this for X amount of minutes. And this, this is what happens in the studies. It just doesn't happen with a snap of a finger. It takes time. It takes sweat. It takes problem solving. It takes teamwork. It takes interdisciplinary coordinated care. And it's something that you got to just get in there, make mistakes. And over time, you're going to get better at it. That's definitely helpful to hear from me and I'm sure other clinicians as well. Yeah, you... I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I feel like we tend to use um, age-based max heart rate, but that's, um, we certainly switch over to a calculation off of heart rate reserve. If we have someone who um, isn't falling within those typical parameters for, for a resting heart rate. And like Carrie said, we find that especially some of our lowest level patients who, who don't have the neuromuscular drive or are very deconditioned or are very sedentary prior, we're not getting them up to that range on day one. The therapist might be getting there, trying to get them there, but we aren't getting the patients there. But we're constantly working towards that goal. We just we do weekly audits at our inpatient facility to see, number one, are our therapists are they engaging in continuous heart rate monitoring with our patients, specifically post-stroke on the unit, and what percentage of sessions are patients achieving that 75% age-based max heart rate? And it's usually around 10 to 15%, but we're talking lower-level patients. We're talking people that are a few days post-stroke but we get them there. We keep working and working and plugging and we're watching the monitor, we're watching the patient evaluating for signs and symptoms of exercise tolerance or intolerance and we just keep pushing. Yeah, and, and then I think it's also important, you know, especially like we're talking about patients that may be very weak after early neurologic um, diagnosis or injury. And you know, if you've got somebody that walks into your clinic Nine times out of 10, you're going to be able, if they're independent, to be able to get them in a heart rate zone. I mean, unless they're on a lot of beta blockers or for whatever reason, it's their first time exercising. So the reason I say that is don't just say, oh, they're not going to get there. Like this work is really hard for patients. It's really hard. It's hard for us to get on a treadmill and get into this heart rate zone, right? So my, my purpose is to always be questioning yourself. How can I make this more challenging? How can I make this harder? And at times when you have a neurologic diagnosis, these patients don't look pretty walking. And that's another barrier to the implementation of this action statement. And, and there's just not data to support that. And we know that errors are part of motor learning. So would you say that this, I, this, would, this question mostly most likely it would be more if a patient's on a treadmill, would you say that we should not be holding onto patient's limbs and helping them move? So you should not be holding onto their limbs and helping them move if they can do it on their own. Okay. You know, there's this notion of if, the, if they can't pull their leg forward, if they literally don't have the neuromuscular drive to pull their leg forward, you might need to help them forward. And even then, I'm in my own head saying, when can I back off? When can I back off? Again, because what happens when you just assist someone, it's called the principle of laziness. They just start to slack. It, it, it's just, it is what it is. Our bodies are efficient. We want to move with the least amount of energy possible. 
So even in our patients who are really weak, it's important to take a step back and say, all right, I want you to try, Mr. or Mrs. Jones, whoever it is, try to pull that leg forward on your own, right? Because the patients really need to start generating their own volitional drive um, and not just having us move them. Because when we move them also, it reduces the intensity, right? We're doing the work for them. Yeah, that makes sense. The intensity, that's our goal. And it can be changing if you're doing the work for them. How many sessions should there be? What should the frequency of sessions be? And how long should the sessions be? I think that varies based, again, on the patient in front of you and maybe what also with consideration for, for insurance constraints and what you're able to do with a patient. In the, in the inpatient setting, we're doing this every day. Every day, patients that have goals of capacity to improve in walking are engaging in as close to or at high intensity gait training as we possibly can. In the outpatient setting, it might be more two to three days a week. It just depends on what we're able to do and also how much practice the patient is able to engage in outside of structured therapy sessions. Certainly the lower level patients, I think, benefit more from coming into the clinic because we know that the practice they're engaging in with us is likely the only walking practice they're getting because they don't have the mobility to practice outside of the sessions. So I think, it, I think it varies anywhere from inpatient daily for sure. We're fortunate enough to see, our, to see our inpatients 90 minutes of PT daily. I know that's not everybody's world, um, but an outpatient is probably pretty similar to what other people are able to um, prescribe from, from, a, from a dosage standpoint, just based on many factors, transportation, insurance, whatever it may be. Yeah, and I think it's tough, right? Because really, from all of our principles of training, from repetition, dose, and intensity, our patients, especially if you're, you know, you're discharged from inpatient rehab, and now you're in outpatient therapy, I mean, I would really say you probably need five days a week, and then you need to be doing yeah. stuff at home, but that's not the structure yeah. that we have right now. <laughs> um, right. More is better. I, I mean, so... It's not ideal, but you really have to start think about, thinking about this notion of, especially if the patient is able to walk on their own, it has to become a part of their life. It has to become part of their daily health behaviors. And so not only are they coming into the clinic and we're giving them a good workout, but we have to have them start taking on that work at home. Um, and then that, so that sort of gets at this notion of performance, right? So capacity is what you can do in the clinic or what you're capable of doing. And performance is what you do in your real life. And so when I have patients that I'm seeing in an outpatient clinic, um, I'm having them, though it's not perfect, get an app on their phone or buy a Fitbit so that I'm having them starting to get attuned to how is life becoming more active? How am I stepping a lot through the day? So you really start to get a lot deeper into trying to manage this notion of how do we translate what we're doing in clinic to become a healthy behavior in your life? And I think just around the sessions, I think that it's forced us to become very creative in how we structure and set up our sessions, too, is we know that when Mrs. Smith rolls in, I want to get in as much intensive walking practice as I need to get. I need to get her harnessed. I need to get a heart rate monitor on her. I need to get the AFO and the knee cage, whatever it may be. How can I expedite that? How can I enlist family members or if there is a tech available to help with that so we can get to stepping as quickly as possible? That's helpful to hear, especially for outpatients. because I think it's a little intimidating to think about getting somebody on certain devices. Sure. 
do we use body weight supported treadmill training or just a harness for safety on the treadmill? And do you suggest letting people hold on? And also following that question, is there a specific order you should bring someone through in terms of a body weight supported device on a treadmill, then a harness on a treadmill, then body weight support or harness over ground, then no body weight, right? And a body weight support device or harness just using an assisted device over ground. This clinical practice guideline, it is speaking to individuals who are ambulatory. So I think that's an important thing to remember is that these individuals have the capacity to walk and therefore do not need to be lifted necessarily for them to be able to walk. Now, certainly outside of the scope of the clinical practice guideline, patients who are unable to support themselves in standing, let alone stepping, and I know that I need to engage them in stepping and lots of stepping and stepping to high intensities, sometimes I do have to give them body weight support. So I think that's where the decision making lies is what is the level of the patient and how do I structure a session to optimize these parameters that we know are so important. Regardless, somebody's in something whether it's a harness for a safety catch, which is the majority of our patients, I would say, um, especially the people that already can walk, um, but then some of them are being lifted if that's what they need so that they're able to step. I think it's really important that therapists think about the active ingredients in their therapy. So the active ingredients are those things that are, you can attribute have caused change, right? So whether it is overground, whether it is on a treadmill, whether it is with or without a harness, all of those are tools. Those are the inactive ingredients, right? And we can use those inactive ingredients in a lot of different ways. But if you are practicing, so if you want to improve walking and you are practicing walking, number one, you got the first check. Well done. Number two, you're going to make sure it's intense right? So you're going to have a heart rate monitor on somebody. So if you've, if you've given them body weight support and you see, you will likely see, oh, their heart rate isn't getting up high, right? Because you've, you've made the task easier. So you have to make sure that you're always kind of using that tool to maximize the active ingredients. So tools to me are kind of on one side, you've got inactive ingredients, and then you've got these active ingredients. And there's a variety of ways that you can use the tools. And so it's no flow sheet. You know what I mean? And every patient's different. And I think sometimes we want this protocol. We want this protocol to tell us when we should use this and when we should do that. And really, if you have your eyes on the active ingredients, if you are practicing task specificity, if you are measuring heart rate and you are doing it in a way that is meaningful and salient for that patient, that will give you all your answers. It will tell you if you need body weight support. It will tell you if the patient doesn't need body weight support like you mentioned and they and they're using it as a catch well are they having a really hard time with their lateral stability so putting their hand on the treadmill is making that easier and you want to make that harder so it's again it's just a tool to get at how do i maximize those active ingredients that's helpful to hear how do you handle individuals that not, may not be progressing clinically and what is the sign that a person is not tolerating or progressing some members of our team have found that in the first few, few sessions, things are really hard and it takes a little bit for the patient to get it. How long should it take for a patient to start getting it? In my experience, I feel like as a profession, sometimes we maybe give up 
a little too early for something that we didn't try hard enough at. So we might try a few sessions where, like as Carrie said, these people are deconditioned. We might only be able to get up to 60% of heart rate max or whatever it may be. And after four sessions, we're ready to throw in the towel and the patient maybe hasn't had an opportunity to, to respond. Um, so it is very hard to give a concrete answer on we do this many, these many sessions um, or this many minutes and we're expecting to see X result to let us know. I also feel like that's really, it's really important to be measuring, utilizing standardized outcome measures so that we can understand how our patients are changing in response to whatever we're doing. So we are continuously repeating assessments like the 10 meter and the six minute walk test to, to understand is our patient responding or not responding to the intervention. And then we use that to help guide our path beyond that. Yeah. I, and I'll share with you an activity that I give my students to do because I think it's, it was really powerful to me as a clinician um, and kind of gets exactly what Megan was talking about. So what I have students do is write down what their desired fit principle, so frequency, intensity, time, and type is based on evidence, right? So if I want to improve walking recovery, I have to exercise the protocol, say, at least three to five times a week, up to 40 minutes of um, high-intensity variable locomotor training, right? And then the first set, have them write F-I-T-T, -T, and then they write exactly what the patient did that session, and frequency doesn't really fit in there, but tracking it over time, it does. And so then they reflect of well, what I wanted and then what I did, where are the discrepancies? And now how am I going to problem solve? What, the, what were the barriers that made my delivered session look different than what I intended? And so what am I going to do next session to help make that, what that output of that session was match what I intend it to look like? And, and like Megan said, that takes some time to get them to match you also have the patient buy-in, right? And in my opinion, the majority of patients, when you educate them and tell them what the possibility of the outcome is, if they really stick with this and practice it, because we know we need a big dose to make different change, to make changes, most people will buy in. Some won't, and that's okay. Um, but maybe your, you know, your intensity threshold is a little bit different on that person that just absolutely won't tolerate or doesn't want to do it. But it's a great reflection tool to say, how, what, what is the barriers to this? And how can I, as the therapist, manipulate it so I make what the output is of my session with that patient match what research says um, is, will create a change in locomotor outcomes? Mm -hmm. And you start to get better. You start to get better because you realize, like one of Megan's first points, well, Mrs. Jones, when they come into the clinic, they, you realize over time, well, it took us 20 minutes to get them set up. Well, that's because th there was no AFOs on. They didn't have the harness ready. The heart rate monitor wasn't out. And you start to notice things in your own practice where you can refine, which helps you improve what the patient receives in your treatment session. Yeah, that, that going through that, I can imagine would make your practice very focused. Yes, and thoughtful and premeditated, right? And that's what we should, we're a profession. You know, we're a doctored profession. That's, that should be our expectation. And we should really be introspective about what can I do? And we can't, we can't quote 
fix everything. We can't make everything perfect, but we can bring our best to the table. We can be thoughtful. We can be premeditated. We can prioritize um, to do better for the patients. You know, and as Carrie indicated, that the patient buy-in is so critical. It is critical from the evaluation when you're discussing what is going to be our plan of attack for getting you from point A to point B. Here's the options. There's this, there's this high intensity gate option. There's these other things too, but also being very, very frank and transparent and realistic about what in your experience, as well as what the research indicates, the potential outcomes for B could be for going down this path or this path. And I think patients respect that. I mean, most people are going to choose the path. They're at least going to try it of, of what the research and your experience is indicating that I feel like it's best. And if you can get them hooked in and start to show some, some real tangible outcomes in those first few visits, then now, now you've got them and you just keep going and keep going and you keep going. Very few people will say from the get-go, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Most people are willing to try. And I always make it very clear with the patients that this is your choice. I am here to facilitate the session. And I will help get you there to optimize your potential. But it's your choice today and it's your choice every day when you come in here. If you want to keep doing this, it's, just, it's our job to kind of nudge them to that path. My next question is, are there guidelines for inclusion slash exclusion criteria for who this intervention is safe for? But it seems like that goes upon monitoring the vitals in the beginning. And other than that, and what you would do for anybody if they didn't take their medication, things like that. And it also loops back to when in doubt, check it out, right? So we talked about that earlier. When in doubt, if they've got all, all kinds of other cardiac diagnoses um, or other things that you are concerned about, get on the phone get a hold of the physician. That's where relationships become really important, right? If you have referring physicians or if you have a physician in, your, in an inpatient rehab facility, that, that coordination and that, that communication between healthcare providers becomes really, really important, right? Because you don't, especially if you're an outpatient, you don't want to lose time because you're trying to get a hold of the physician <laughs> to make sure that they're, they're safe to do this. And then it also goes back to you don't have to go all the, if there's a lot of other diagnoses or comorbidities, you don't have to go all the way right away. Start mm -hmm. with something, see how they respond at a low, a lower intensity level and then slowly build up. Um, but it goes back mm -hmm. to when in doubt, check it out, call that physician, get them on the phone and make sure that you, if they need, you know, an uh, exercise stress test before you start something like this, that you've given that physician full acknowledgement that, that, they, that they might need to do that before the exercise if they think it's appropriate. Yeah, we just, we had this incident happen today where I was on the phone talking to car the cardiologist, specifically the woman who's looking at the device that my patient with chronic brain injury happens to have implanted. And wanting to understand what happened during the session. It was a call that, that we facilitated because we didn't like what we were seeing on our monitor. We knew the patient had these comorbidities and it's been an ongoing discussion. And it's interesting when we call offices, I think the physicians are mostly surprised that we even have the numbers, that we're even looking at things like that, that we can give them heart rates and blood pressures and times and things like that 
So I think it's opened up a great dialogue for no matter what we're doing with patients, high intensity or not, we've got to know where they're at during sessions. We have to know how they're responding right. to any intervention. Yes, absolutely. Sounds like a good time to educate doctors also about this intervention and what we're doing. Yeah, and we're, we have a group that's working with our KT task force that's working on some educational materials and letters to physicians that we hope to get up um, in the very near future so that people have sort of a tool to assist in, well, how should you communicate with the doctor? And what are some of the things you should be saying? Um, not only to help advocate for the patients to get them this intervention, um, but sort of standardize and help therapists have, have a meaningful dialogue and, and get a hold of physicians when there are concerns. So I think those are all the questions I have for you all. Thank you again for your efforts and for taking the time to talk to me today. Is there anything else on this topic either of you would like to add? The only thing I would say is we've talked a lot about, you know, what the CPG tells us we should do. You know, we should do moderate to vigorous, um, moderate to high intensity uh, walking training to improve walking outcomes. And then it goes into the maze and then there's the should nots, right? And so we've got this pie of time with, with each individual that walks through the door. And our job is to make sure that we do the shoulds when they want to improve walking outcomes and they're in the chronic stages of post-stroke, motor incomplete SCI, and brain injury. And, you know, you really have to think about how do I want to spend my therapy time and being very thoughtful um, and prescriptive about it. And the, the vast majority of that outside of outcome assessment and, and, and adjusting goals and training family members is on those shoulds, you know, and, and I work in an outpatient department, and I would tell you that when those patients come in, I don't ever want to see them on the bike cycling unless it's the one time they're practicing taking their heart rate and cycling on the bike because they're going to start to do it at home. Those are the maze. They shouldn't fill our time. And then the should nots really just should not be done. When you want to improve walking, speed, and endurance, in the chronic stages of individuals who are ambulatory, post-stroke, motor incomplete SCI, and brain injury. And that's, that's really important. And, you know, and I don't know what it would look like if we walked into every clinic here in the United States to see what some of those patients were doing. Um, and we have strong recommendations of what we should be doing when these patients, and the vast majority of them, want to get better at walking. It's a primary goal for all of these individuals that have each of these diagnoses. And we have such a, a wonderful document that took so much time um, and was so thoughtful and rigorous in methodology. And I just really encourage people to read it, to take the time to really be reflective of their own practice. And just because it's what you did yesterday isn't what it has to be that you should do tomorrow. It's we can change and we can do better for our patients. I think making that change can be hard, but definitely can be worth it. That's our call as a professional. Um, and so I think it's really important therapists take that to heart um, and remember that, that it's not about us. It is about the human being sitting in front of us, and we have to do the best for them to improve their outcomes and hopefully their health and wellness along with it. Thank you to our guests and the entire Knowledge Translation Task Force. Until next time, remember, intensity matters.